You're listening to The Plate Up, a podcast for the food and beverage world from restaurants to bars, hotels and travel. My name is Hashan Piris and I'm the Corporate Executive Chef for Banyan Tree Hotels and Resorts. And I'm joined by my F&B counterpart, Sebastian Divaskaya, F&B Director of the one and only hotel in Mexico. And over the next hour, we are hoping to tackle some of the hottest topics in F&B, share some stories, go through our process, talk about the lessons we've learned and how to untangle some of the complexities in this industry. Day of public holiday, which was the first of May. Ah, Cinco de Mayo. No, no, Cinco. Okay, so let's start with Cinco de Mayo. No one here in Mexico celebrates Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> so it's something that's celebrated by everyone else in the world. Yes, Mexico doesn't really give any importance to Cinco de Mayo. Ah, okay. Okay. If I remember correctly, the fifth of May here is. Children's Day, if it's not the fifth, sixth, but okay. Cinco de Mayo is not a thing. No one gets into the streets and drinks Corona and, and dances around the sombrero. No, that is not happening. Well, Corona would not be the most popular thing right now, anyway. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So that's the deal with Cinco de Mayo then. Okay. It's a pure uh, marketing invention. Ah, uh, okay. Um, which, which relates to another topic we're going to talk about today. Ah, oh, what's that? The sea, the, the Himalayan salt. Ah, yeah. That is the copper pot of the salt world. I'm, uh, I'm excited about this topic, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get on to that. Yes. Um, so I've been... Uh, I've actually, I've got a couple of things I want to talk to you about. Tell One me. is straight down your alley. Actually, I'll be reading some real sad news actually coming out of Australia two of my favorite restaurants were closed right which ones one's called long grain okay which now this is going to upset a lot of people <laughs> right but to me this is still my most this is my favorite thai restaurant in australia or in the world i remember you telling me this yeah 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 i mean maybe maybe it's because it probably introduced me to what Thai food could be outside of the traditional Thai that, you know, we grew up with in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, we finally got to see... When you so say traditional I'll, I'll Thai, be, is the, the, the Thai you could yeah, find easily in because, Australia? Yeah, because, well, I mean, let's be honest. Um, when I was growing up, uh, you know... Actually, I must say in Melbourne, where I was from, um, it was very cosmopolitan and very multicultural. So uh, we had access to other cuisines, you know. So it wasn't strange to find, you know, that you'd find Australian, Italians and, you know, uh, Greeks eating at a Lebanese restaurant or they're all eating at an Italian restaurant or, okay, Italian's pretty normal, but, or a Thai restaurant. It was very multicultural. Um, but for a long time, it was like an Australian version of Thai, right? Yes. An Australian version of Italian. As much as us Australians don't want to believe we do that, right? That's what it was. <laughs> I think it just, it's by force of nature and circumstance. Yeah, yeah. It, it comes down to what ingredients you can find, what, yes. uh, you know, it, it literally comes down to that. It, it's not based on anything else. So you adapt. You adapt your yeah. cuisine yeah. based on and, what and, you can and, find. And I think also, you know, it's easy to kind of uh, rubbish that. You know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, these guys, uh, they're, you know, there's like, you know, you always look at Americans go, oh, this is American uh, Italian food and mm. they've bastardized it or, you know, the British have bastardized it. But at the end of the day, when people are starting up, you have to adapt to people's palate. You can't just come in firing out spicy Thai food, right, to a culture that's never been, in, you know, exposed to that. Okay, this is a long time ago I'm talking about, not now. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of slowly, gradually, 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 and you have to adapt the food to what people are accepting back then, True. right? That's, a so, lot, that's an angle a lot of people don't understand, is that you also yeah. have to adapt to your market yeah. and your, your demand. Exactly. And I think if you look back now and, and people laugh at, you know, other cuisines and go, you know, I think now it's improved a lot. It's probably, you know, I think 
those traditional I, I mean i can tell you now chinese food or what they call chinese food in australia right you know we used to have this thing called lemon chicken i don't think you can get lemon chicken anywhere in, in china right i had chinese um, food in morocco and i've never heard of lemon chicken exactly right and, and in italian in in america they have this dish i think it's called general tao's chicken or something yes, like that yes. which because uh, i watched a documentary on a long time ago right and there's no such thing as general towels, anything in China, right? It's just that people have to adapt to the market and, and then, you know, eventually grow. So um, we always were exposed to traditional Thai food, right? And then when I finally moved to Sydney and, you know, this is when I was a second, uh, this is when I was a commie, there was a famous restaurant over there called Sailor's Thai. Um, and they did, and, you know, we went out for their Thai food and they were really, completely different like you know you're finding lamb shanks curry and things like that and you're like oh hang on this is really, you know this is different fast forward a few years later the i think the head chef from sailors thai who was a german guy actually german australian guy so not a thai guy opens this restaurant called uh, i think and his name was marty boats actually right um he opens a restaurant called long grain right mm -hmm. which is in melbourne and in sydney well it came to it was in sydney then it moved to melbourne you know, in reference well. to to thai rice i'm sure exactly in in reference to thai rice this thai food was the best thai food i've ever had and to this day i've ever had maybe it's nostalgia maybe it's the ambience the location you know the memories that it invokes right Mm -hmm. But for me, like all those flavors nailed it because, you know, you're talking, it's Australia. It's, you know, people, I don't think if you put that in here, it's no one would call that Thai. Well, no, it would still be considered Thai food, right? But it wouldn't be ground baking in Thailand because there are many people doing that over here, right? Um, but the flavors that they were using and pushing the boundary with back then, And to this day, uh, it was really good. There was another, there's another restaurant called Red Spice Road, which is also going down that direction. Now, the reason I talk about this is both of them have closed. They were both come out officially saying we will, uh, we cannot operate anymore, which is something I wanted to talk to you about because, you know, we've been talking about restaurant closures purely due to the fact that um, COVID-19 restrictions put them in closure. Now, a lot of places are lifting their restrictions and social distancing laws literally mean some of these restaurants have to cut their seating capacity by half to 60%. Yes. Or more. So operating a restaurant with 40% seating capacity, right, or 50% key seating capacity is not um, financially viable. No. What, what are your thoughts on that? Like, wh where do you – like – How, what should restaurants consider now financially? Let's forget the staffing and all that. Like, let's turn now talk financially. If you're a business owner now or a restaurant owner now and you're thinking, do I open my restaurant? What should I be thinking about now? Because this is something actually, I must say, it didn't really, I didn't really think too much about it. I just thought, well, you know, you're going to be stuck with people not wanting to spend so much money, uh, people, you know, being a little bit more careful and the market's going to be uh, quite dry. Mm -hmm. I, I actually must say, I, it didn't straight away, can, I didn't put that other factor that operating a restaurant at 50% capacity probably won't work either. Well... <laughs> I was talking about this with, uh, with Chandler, who's a, a very good friend of mine, a, a chef as well, terrific chef, uh, which you know, uh, obviously, uh, who is currently in Bangkok. And he told me, told me that um, restaurants are now starting to be allowed to reopen under certain specific conditions. And one of them being, obviously, the, the reduced amount of guests you can do in a day. And, and some can only operate at 20% capacity. Yeah. So for a, for a restaurant that has 100 uh, seats, you can do only 20 uh, a day or, or 20 at any given time. This poses a lot of problems. Um, what people need to understand or what everyone needs to understand is that restaurants operate on very, very tight margins. And let's, as you said, let's Think about the case of someone wanting to reopen or open his restaurant. 
before you, you, you even establish a restaurant, before you open a restaurant as, as an entrepreneur and you, you think, okay, this seems like a good idea. I want to open my own restaurant. You ultimately, everything is based on how many guests you're going to get in a day. This is your business plan. You need yep. to, you, you start by that. And, and then you say, okay, I, I need to find a good location to achieve these numbers. But the rent is going to dictate already a big part of your costs. Uh, obviously, if you go into a more crowded or, or upscale area, your rent is going to be much higher. So you need to do much more volume. So you need to do many more covers. And uh, you then establish how many, how much is any given guest going to spend in your restaurant, which is what we call in the, in the industry the average check. How much money... Uh, every guest that comes through your doors is going to spend an average. And, and then you, you make a calculation or an assumption and you say, all right, everyone is going to come in. And if we're speaking of a traditional restaurant setup where you have uh, an a la carte menu, so an itemized menu with different uh, categories, like a starter, a main course and a dessert to keep it very simple. And you assume that uh, everyone is going to order three courses so a starter, a main course and a dessert. And you kind of establish the price range you want to be in. So you say, okay, my starters in average are going to be $10 and my main courses are going to be 15 or 20 and my desserts are going to be seven. And I hope everyone is going to get a glass, of bottle, a glass or a bottle of water and everyone is going to get maybe a glass of wine if you sell alcohol or a beer. So you add all of that up and you kind of establish how much any given guest is going to spend in your restaurant. So you multiply that by the number of guests that you think will come through your doors based on your seating capacity, and that makes your revenue. And, and you, if you open for lunch or for dinner or only one meal period, then you multiply by the number of meal periods you, you, you have. But I don't need to make a disclaimer here, but I'm really simplifying things to, to, for the sake of the argument. So you make all of your decisions based on, on those factors, what we call also the KPIs, which was the, the key performance indicators that are your average check or the average spend per guest and the number of guests. And that then dictates your, your revenue. Uh, in opposition to that, you have your costs. So rent is one. Then you have your, your food and beverage cost, which is how much money uh, you are spending to produce the food that you're selling. And these standards, I mean, these, these usually work as a ratio, as a percentage of the selling price. And we can, to, to be very general, you can always say that a restaurant will be between 15 and 30% food cost, depending or even higher or lower if, if the, the produce is very cheap or if your prices are very high. But uh, I think 20, 20 to 30% is usually the norm. Uh, and the same with your beverages. So you already know that 20% of all the money that you make in selling food goes to buying food. You apply the same to beverages. Uh, you have your food and beverage costs. And then you have all your utilities, electricity, water, gas uh, for the kitchens. You have, uh, as I mentioned already many times, the rent, you have some equipment rental that you might have, and then you have all of your operating equipments, your straws, uh, your coasters, your napkins, your towels, everything that you need to operate your restaurant. So all, the, all these costs add up. And in, in certain cases, you could say, ah, well, if I have less guests, then I just need to have less people working and um, I just spend less money. But the problem is that the best case scenario is a full restaurant because then you have everything under control. When you have a full restaurant at every meal period, you know exactly how much you're going to spend because you have 80 seats and 80 seats are taken every meal period. So you know how much you're going to spend. The, the variables are, are much less. But if you are operating at 20%, and, and there's still uncertainty because you don't know 
yes, you're allowed to operate at 20%, but as you said, in this situation now, people are maybe less likely to go out. So you might be at 20% twice a week and the rest of the time you're at 10% of your capacity or 12 or 15. So that has a huge impact on, on your costs. And how do you manage your, your, your waiters? Do you have a, a full team every day? Do you have a half team? Uh, one day, some days you, you get caught off guard, right? You, you might plan only one waiter and, and all of a sudden you're, you're slammed and you have too many guests and you can't take care of these guests. These guests will never come back because they had a bad experience. So it's, it's a really, really difficult situation. And for, I, I believe for any restaurants running at 20% is just not feasible. Only a few restaurants are very lucky to have a very, very low rent. Um, and they can manage to let go of, of certain team members or their entire team is, is on partial contracts or, or on timed hours. So they only need to call in people when they need. They don't need to have people on contract. Um, and, and I think this is also a, an interesting discussion we can have because a lot of times when we read about news of the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry, we get the American point of view which is hourly pay and people get paid by the hour and you can dismiss them anytime you don't need them. But in Europe and the rest of the Eastern world, people are on contracts, which yeah. they, are Same paid, in they are paid by day or by month. Yep. So if they work four hours, if you, they still get paid a full day. So that's even more challenging because they are on your payroll no matter what. And then if you, if you all of a sudden you have to run at 20%, but you had a full team before you close down, what do you do? Do you fire uh, 80% of your, of your waiters? That's not, I mean, it's not fair, but also it's not feasible to keep them on board, right? You can always find things to do, but uh, at the end of the day, if you can't pay their salaries, it's also not fair to them. So it's a very, very complicated uh, scenario for restaurants. It's very difficult and as you brought it up in the beginning, I think a lot of restaurants are going to just say, listen, I can't go on. I, I can't. It's not feasible. I can't pay my bills. And again, the, all the scenario I mentioned in the beginning and the explanation is very simplified. And it's um, taken into consideration that you have no loans, that you have can no, I, no debts. Yes. Can I, can I just play devil's advocate here? Tell me. Is it bad uh, manage like is it being a bad manager that it's led to this, or bad financial management? The reason I ask is this: you're looking at, you know, when you see some of these restaurants that are struggling right now, right? And and let's let's talk about big ones, right? Let's not focus on the little ones. Let's talk about the big ones. Eleven Madison Park, right in New York. That's yeah. about you know is in the same situation these big ones, I'm sure around the areas. Is it due to poor, like we're talking, these places are churning out money, right? I mean, they're, they're usually generally all full, especially the fine dining, fine dining restaurants, right? And we'll get to hotel restaurants in a minute, but we're talking about the big fine dining ones, right? Or the, you know, the, the more popular ones, the ones that always have traffic that's coming through these restaurants. Is it bad financial planning on the owner's behalf that's led to this because i also struggle to understand how a restaurant that's always actually i don't want to say always busy because i'm sure someone's going to say well we're not always busy but with who's getting a lot of foot traffic through the door and has not only the you know the uh, presence in uh, in the region or in the city right but it has a great name for itself how these restaurants are at a situation with where they are struggling. Now, just to come back to something you've said, and I don't think many people may know, we're, being popular is a double-edged sword for a lot of restaurants because, you know, you might start off with very small rent and things like that, but as soon as it suddenly gets popular, rent goes up, right? You hear that, you know, you hear that in Hong Kong a yes, lot. Hong, used, Hong Kong is Hong a Kong, big... Yeah, big, where uh, you got these little noodle shops that get hot, you know, get Michelin stars, and all of a sudden 
their rent goes up threefold and they can't increase their pricing because that's what people have been coming for, right? So sometimes popularity is a double-edged sword. Yes. In the same fact, is it poor management? Like I kind of wonder and, I, 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 you know, I'm all about the staff and things like that, but would it have made more sense to say, guys, I need to shut our restaurants down no, you know, we we have to close. Mm-hmm. We're all going to be taking a hit together because if I keep on keeping paying everyone to sit at home, we won't have a restaurant to come back to. Yes. Or do you, you know, it's a, it's a hard topic to have because I'm in the foot of both sides. You know, I have one foot in the operating side and I have one foot in the managing side. And I wonder... You know, what do you do? Do you, and I'm not saying you cut your losses because I, I don't, that's probably not the best word to use here, but there has to be sometimes you have to make an educated decision, right? Which may, it may be painful in the short term, but in the long term, you still keep your business operating. Yes, like unpaid leaves or things like that. Yeah. So, again, there's no fit every shoe answer. If that's an expression, I maybe I maybe just invented one. No, but no. <laughs> from personal experience, I don't think a lot of restaurant groups have a rainy day savings account. I don't think uh, as a best. But practice, is that due to them wanting to expand and their own? Like you know, you, you see. Okay, let's talk about restaurant groups. They're yeah. constantly expanding. Yeah, I was yeah. going to to get into that. It, it, yeah. it really depends on the on the scenario. Uh, if you are, let's okay, let's let's imagine you are a restaurant. You're an entrepreneur. You build a restaurant, and you have one, and it takes a few years. Uh, and also, please, public disclaimer: a restaurant is not a supermarket. You don't open the doors the first day and you start making money immediately. It takes a long time to build trust and to build a relationship with the community, with the city where you are, and to raise awareness on what you're doing. And, and you have to be consistent. You have to be good to, for people to recommend you and for you to be popular and then to start working well. So it takes time. So let's say your restaurant uh, picks up, you start to make money, and you have a steady uh, flow of guests and therefore a steady flow of, of money coming in. And after a few years, you've paid off. Uh, you've paid off all your debts, and you've paid all, all the money that you needed, and you can finally finally start making actual profit. Well, the 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 market or, or the industry or the, the the society we live in demands that that. Well, if if I manage to do it with one restaurant, I can do it with another one, and another one, and another one. And also people will come knocking on your doors and saying, hey, you have a great restaurant and I have some some money and can you give me ideas or would you like to partner and we can open another restaurant? So expansion is the normal step. Uh, I really respect chefs and, and chef owners and owners who dedicate their entire life to a single restaurant. And there's many examples around there. But if we look at all of the big names nowadays, everyone has... Uh, two, three, four, five, six, seven restaurants because you want to to multiply. You want to expand your business and and you get uh, partners and you get shareholders and and then people want to see the business grow. It's it's normal. So whatever profit you make, well, you reinvest. So yes, you are walking on a tight rope. So is that bad management? No, I think it's, uh, it's, it's business practice. But not having a rainy day account, not account, but like a, some cash flow in case anything happens, that I think is just common sense. And a lot of people don't think about this. We, we are humans and we don't, uh, we, we don't foresee these things. And so we, we are very optimistic, uh, blindly so sometimes. And we don't think about the bad times. We only think about the good times. So is it bad management? Maybe, I don't know, it's short-sightedness. But then how you deal with the situation uh, is, is then this is where you see the, 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 the leaders and, and the good managers. And as you said, 
identifying from the very beginning, okay, this is going to be a problem. We're entering a difficult situation. What are the different scenarios? What if we have to close for a certain number of months, weeks? What's going to happen then? What is scenario A? What is scenario B? What is scenario C? I think a lot of these big restaurant groups, um, they have their own financial departments. They, they have tax specialists or advisors. They have accountants. They, they know how their business works. There's no other way. You can't have a successful business if you don't know the money you spend and the money that comes in. It's, it's, it's impossible. So you have a responsibility to, to the team, you to the people you employ. And you, as, as a leader, as an owner, you have to look at the different uh, possible outcomes and try to find the best solution for everyone. And as you said, try to get out of this dark tunnel with something left for people to come back to. Um, unfortunately, you have people who get the short end of the stick and they were already in a difficult situation before the, the, COVID, the situation happened. And this is kind of the nail in the coffin, right? Um, and this is just bad circumstance. But if we're talking about restaurant groups that are doing well and well-established restaurants that are doing well, and all of a sudden this happens and they are kind of caught with their pants down, uh, it might be easy to say it's bad management, but I, I think it's really short-sightedness and, and a lack of, of plan. If, yeah, plan. Just planning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it, it's just sad to see. Um, I mean, and I'm, I'm harping on about long grain because it, it was my personal favorite it was my one of my you know i never went to the one in sydney which closed last year um or the year before maybe mm. um but uh the one in melbourne was always you know it was more melbourne centric and you know uh, it works for us how do you think hotels should now consider now you know i've just we, we opened our restaurant on sunday actually okay and when you okay, it's hard to kind of say this is how it should be done because every region has its own separate rules and regulations mm -hmm. on social distancing and things like that, right? And they will keep changing. And, and they will keep changing. And you know, I'm not here to say it's right or wrong because right now, you know, it, it, right now, it's not designed to be diner friendly. To tell you the truth, right? You know, any social distancing at dinner is not designed uh with uh to be a you know exciting experience because um you're automatically separated with the per from the person you're actually trying to enjoy dinner with unless you're dining on your own i mean that's a completely yes. different fish how do restaurants now think about this because uh, not restaurants hotels because hotels are now going to be running they they're kind of getting the you know they're at the starting blocks again you know the the marshal's got his hand up, you know, and he said, "On your marks." Mm. He said, "Get set." You can see the gun in his hand, about to cock. Where, what should now restaurants, uh, hotels consider before they start running out to open all their restaurants? Because maybe there's a lot, there's a lot of people that maybe blindly thinking that. We're going to have customers rushing to get back into restaurants because they've been in their houses for the last month and a half or two months, three months, and they want to get back into some kind of normality, which is, you know, going out and eating. And then all of a sudden they've got these, they've got to implement this social distancing rules and, you know, meter apart from the other guests. Um, do you think hotels need to really think long and hard about this? Because... It doesn't matter. I mean, let's be honest. Hotels have a bit more of an advantage in the way that they've got housekeeping departments that can, you know, that can clean and sanitize and train people on how to clean and sanitize very well. You know, they've got they've got a lot bigger operational team that can kind of jump in and assist. Um, but my fear is that everyone's getting ready to open, but the customer is not going to be there. I think the customer is still very skittish and sheepish about going to any restaurant. And if you're a diner 
are you really looking forward to the fact of sitting a meter away from your companion or your family and have and enjoying a dinner or would you rather just stay at home and you know sit like a family and eat dinner because mm. the entire process of eating with someone else is to enjoy each other's company be you know in each other's face and in each other's vicinity yes is having a social distancing rule which mind you is I'm not here to say it's not uh, required because it's definitely required. But what do hotels have to think about before they start running out to open these restaurants? Well, I, I have two two opinions on this, and, and they're both at the opposite end of each other. <laughs> uh, I love it. One One of them is that, as you said, hotels have a lot of advantages. Uh, and also what people need to to know is when you mentioned that hotels have a housekeeping department and an engineering or maintenance department that can come and support uh, restaurants uh, to, to do the cleaning and the sanitizing and the maintenance, uh, what is very important to note is that the costs of that is shared or sometimes not even allocated to the restaurants. It is, it is, uh, paid for or taken care of by the hotel operation. It's in a different. It sits in different books. Whereas if you were in an independent restaurant, all of that comes into your cost. You have to pay for it. There's you can't just move it to a different account. It's your cost. Whereas in a hotel, well, you can. It's shared services, right? So you could decide to say, oh well, the hotel will pay for this. The restaurant it doesn't need to burden the restaurant's uh, balance sheet. So I think in this, the hotels have an advantage because people might think, well, you know, hotels, they are they usually are, are from an international chain. Uh, they have standards, they have international standards, they have guidelines, they have hygiene standards that are um, developed from within and also imposed by travel agents, and by uh, the government. So restaurants, or a hotel, or hotels are usually much stricter and, and stronger on these points. They have more support and they have more means. So guests might think, well, it's, it might be safer to dine in a, in a hotel. The other point of view is that it depends why you're going to eat in a hotel. And usually people go to dine in a hotel to celebrate something. Uh, and uh, now is maybe not the time that people want to celebrate outside or don't have the available uh, income to, to celebrate and, and rather do it at home in a smaller committee and think twice before spending uh, money because everyone is in the same boat. And a lot of, uh, I would say most people have had their income affected by the situation and had to take pay cuts or unpaid leave or, or, or you name it. So going out for, for a meal in a hotel might not be the, the first uh, response after the, the confinement, right? Or after the lockdown. So hotels need to be very, very careful. They have the advantage that they can absorb um, missed revenue because they are part of a, of a bigger whole. But I don't think people are going to rush to the doors of, of hotel restaurants or, or any restaurant for that matter, except really small neighborhood restaurants that are staple and that people go to uh, on their lunch break, for example, or after, after work in the evening before going home. So there's a million different scenarios and a million different reasons why people go for to eat. But if we're talking about hotels, and obviously because we're both in the, in the five-star hotel industry, this is usually our reference point. Uh, and those have uh, higher or upper scale restaurant offerings, I don't think people are going to rush back into, into hotel restaurants, except if uh, they're, they're travelers from international travelers or tourists who are staying and they don't want to risk going outside. And so they would rather eat at the hotel, but uh, not many people are moving internationally at the moment. I think every, every airspace is pretty much blocked. So the only positive thing out of this is that hotel restaurants will get to, to practice all of these new uh, COVID-19 guidelines and, 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 sanita and sanitization guidelines and social distancing guidelines and service guidelines that, that are new. 
Okay. Okay. I, I think, uh, I mean, we could go on and on about this because I think there's, it's, it's you know, and, and you know, I want to use the buzzword, the the buzzword of 2020, it's very fluid. Right? <laughs> it's a very fluid situation. I think this is going to be Oxford's word of the year. Of the year. I've never used the word fluid until in anything, unless it was ref- in reference to some food or <laughs> beverage. Right? And all of a sudden, everyone's using the word fluid for everything. So... Yeah, well, they say fluid one because it's vague and it might change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the it's it is. I'm coming all jokes aside. It is a very fluid situation because what's happening today is changing tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, what happened in Bangkok was actually um, on the Friday, last Friday. Um, the announcement came on Saturday, <laughs> on Sunday, sorry, you could open your restaurants, right? Mm. So talk about fluid, you know, you, you literally had two days notice to suddenly um, get your restaurant up and going. Yes. Um, so which for hotels is relatively easier because you've got, you know, okay, not all, but we, we had the manning and we had people around. For a small restaurant, it may be a little bit harder because, A, you're going to find your employees again. You're not exactly sure how much cash flow you may have to pay these employees. Yes. Employees may be locked out in a region or still in lockdown or some kind of thing. So, you know, you've got to, yeah, and some, you know, not everyone's driving in. Some people take public transport. Public transport isn't considered to be, you know, a lot of people don't feel safe to travel on public transport. So there's a lot of things to consider, but um, we got it up and going. So that's why actually uh, to give people a bit, to give our audience a bit of an update, you know, the last week I've actually been um, the hotel manager uh, because we all take turns and uh, I was a hotel manager for the last six days, which we will talk about next time because, uh, you know, this whole restaurant closure topic was probably a bit more important than my hotel manager experience. But um, a lot of interesting things I learned out of that, and I really want to talk to you about that. Uh, oh, good. Next Especially with, uh, and we never really talked about Mexican food, um, so I think uh, we also got to get back to that. But something you let's let's get off something quite serious, and let's go on to my usual rant: uh, the pink salt. <laughs> right now, I may the have said pink salt. I may have said pink salt is the copper pot of the salt world, but actually I'm wrong. Ah. Because it's the less copper useful spot, even than the, than the copper exactly, pot. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> copper pot actually has your you know, let's let's we, we forget the copper pot has quality, it has obviously op, you know, it has an operational benefit because it heats up very quickly and it retains heat and things like that, right? Um, it has a lot of benefits for its price. Yes. Pink salt has nothing other than the fact that it's pink. All right. So let's 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 build the let's build the topic. Okay. So pink salt. Let's talk about pink salt. Pink salt because it is you know you see it on menus. You know you see it's pink salt's up there with truffle oil for me, right? It's Don't just get me started on truffle oil. <laughs> right, it's just nonsense. Now, truffle oil at least has some kind of benefit because you taste, you can taste it, obviously, right? There is no way if I put a tasting of 10 blindfolded salt in front of you, Sebastian, that you would pink the pink one, right? And say, oh, yeah, that's the pink one I just tasted. Now, I'm I'm going to be the devil's advocate on this one. Yeah. Uh, to to frame the topic, we're talking about pink salt and what also people might find in their in, in on menus online in Himalayan supermarkets. pink salt, Himalayan Murray pink River salt. pink salt. Yeah. Okay. So the reason why I would be the devil's advocate is that usually ground pink salt is very finely ground, much finer than your average table salt. So on texture only, you might say, okay, this is maybe the pink salt. But on taste, absolutely not. Uh, there, there is n- no scientific evidence that, that pink salt is 
either good for you or better for you than, than table salt. If anything, it is like chemically, the composition of pink salt is exactly the same as table salt um, with the difference that there is no uh, iodine in well, it, which is, even, the, which is actually a bad thing. Pink salt fanboys and fangirls will run to. They will say, one. oh, but it's got additional minerals. But the minerals are so minute it's, in it's your l- serving. It's less than, than a percent, not even. Exactly, right? It's and so minute that there is no benefit. And if you, if you weigh, and also there's a lot of things distorted because, because it's ground much finer. Um, obviously, the density is, is, is it's much lighter. So if you, comp- you need to compare an apple with an apple. And if you compare the same amount of pink salt and table salt, uh, it will have exactly the same composition in minerals. So there is no added benefit of, of having pink salt. Um, what is very funny is that you can sometimes see that they sell you or it's advertised as Himalayan sea salt. Uh, so what people need there to understand... There ain't no sea in Himalayas, Sebastian. Well, first of all, and the second of all is that I would say most of the production, and if, if not every, the whole of the pink salt uh, production, Himalayan pink salt uh, production, is happening in Punjab, Pakistan. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, there is that. So you, there's no you, there's no sea there. Uh, um, now. I just saw now, Sebastian, my favorite man, and that's what I'm talking about, has just yes. put a chili con carne episode. So straight after this, I'm going to go and watch that. Uh, it's going to be a lot of swearing for people who don't know. This guy, I mean, he, you have, can, you, can you give his, his name and his YouTube channel to everyone? Okay, his name is, well, I, I don't know his exact name, but it's called Nats, N-A-T-S, apostrophe S, what I reckon. Australian guy. That's his YouTube channel. He's just made a chili con. Chili con can't go outside. That's what the episode's called. Chili con can't go outside. Yeah. But if you want a very good, um, if you go on YouTube, because that's where we all live, <laughs> me and you especially, <laughs> and you type in pink salt, there is a um, business insider, the YouTube channel has a series called So Expensive. Really interesting, actually. So I think we may pick through this. Uh, seg, uh, segment and find why certain things are so expensive, but it does it does have a very good um, uh, piece. Uh, it's only a five minute piece on pink salt and what it is, how they mine it, um, what the benefits or not the benefits are, and why it's expensive. And it, it is twenty times more expensive than normal table salt, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. But um, and it's only mined in two places in the world. One is in Pakistan, and the other one is in Murray River, Australia. And I remember when I was a junior chef, we used to have it, you know, Murray River pink salt. We used to pay a packet for this stuff. Mm. Um, but I remember also tasting it going, this doesn't taste any different to normal salt. It, the Murray River one, I'm, I may say it had a bit more of a grassy-ish flavor. If you really kind of close your eyes, block yourself, went into a zen mode, you could probably pick up on it. But are you, you know, but you'd prinkle it on top of a steak and go, and you'd kind of write on your menu and say, you know, yes, whatever steak with whatever sauce, finished off with pink salt, and you know, there is no way a customer is going to pick up on whether that's pink salt. And I'll tell you what, when it comes, to, let's not forget, you know, most people eat at dinner, right? Uh, mm. Not lunchtime. So under in a darkened room under restaurant lighting, ain't no one even going to see what pink salt if it's pink, white, green, or whatever salt it is, right? Because the now, let, me, let me hit you with a curveball. Yeah. What if your steak comes to your table on a block of pink salt? Now, that's another one. Because that's a, that, the, interestingly, you can cook on this stuff. I've never tried it. Actually, I think I may have tried it. Because you can put the salt on top of uh, in an oven and then put a piece of fish on top of it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if, I, I never tried it. Uh, um, people that are listening could probably tell us if it does have any benefit. I can't see how it would have. Maybe it may impart some kind of flavor, 
some salty flavor. Obviously, I can't see how you could cook a steak on it because I'm not sure if you can get a pink salt so hot, to tell you the truth. But these blocks are used to absorb humidity, actually, because you always see it in some like steak, uh, the meat um, aging cabinet. You'll yes. always see these uh, pink salt blocks in there yes. purely as a uh, measure to reduce the humidity in there. And uh, so the aging of your of your piece of meat. Mm, mm. So they do do that, but then you know these pink salt lamps, Sebastian. You know people are making lamps out of it and using it as some kind of you know therapy device. There are pink salt rooms actually. Um, Virgin Gym in Bangkok, the one in uh, Saton. I remember going in there. They have a pink salt relaxation room. And, you know, the lady was telling me that it, it has benefits for me. And I was like, at the time, I just said, oh, okay, I've never seen anything like it. When I went and researched it. Yeah, exactly. Because, hey, a room full of pink salt has to be good, right? You know. But What is interesting hey. is that if you, <laughs> the, the, the color, the, the pink of that salt is actually, it's, an, it's considered an impurity of, yes. of the vein. Of the, the the salt thing, so that's the, the impurities give the color to to the salt. But I think it's an interesting topic because it 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 leads us slowly to the topic of provenance, right? That a lot of countries uh, regions are very proud of their produce and and what they do, and the, the reason why is that maybe a family who raises pigs or a family who raises a certain type of chicken. For, uh, for generations has mastered the, the, the craft of raising chickens or raising pigs. And they have found the best feed possible for that animal. And it gives the most uh, flavorful meat or the most marbled meat, marbled meaning the, the, the best fat ratio between the muscle, the muscle tissues. Um, so that was a quality that was recognized and they kept doing this because people liked it. And so obviously then you have, you have a, a regional product that is recognized and you can sell this at a premium because there's a story and there's a process and there's generations of knowledge uh, that have uh, succeeded each other to, um, to be able to produce this in a, in a consistent manner. Now, in the case of salt, it's there, especially not sea salt, but, but salt that is mined, it's there. We're just collecting it. And then uh, most, I mean, especially the ones that is uh, produced in, in Pakistan, it's produced in bulk and then it's, it's sent to other countries so that it, it processes it. So it, it refines it or it um, grinds it, packages it and then sells it. So it's, it, the, the final product might not even be made next to the Himalayas. It might be made in, uh, in Yorkshire for, for that matter. <laughs> so is that really... Uh, can we really talk about provenance? Is it did the human uh, touch add value to it? I'm not so sure in this case, particularly yep. Com compared to to Malden salt, for example, or or um, other types of traditional salts that are uh, made in in very difficult, complicated processes. Very traditionally, it's a craft, and 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 the craft is passed on from generation to generation, and they keep this this craft alive. It's like uh, now the butter. Uh, who's the man? Your man? Your butter Bordier. man? Oh. Jean-Yves Bordier. Man, if I tell you, I, I, had the, I had the privilege of trying his butter to all our listeners. It's some of the best, most amazing butter. I've never seen the process. Sebastian used to tell me about the process, but, you know, it's not easy to imagine how it comes together until I saw, uh, was it on Munchies, was it? Or no. On... Where was it? it Delectable? Was I'm not sure, but they did a few episodes lately that were very good. They went very deep yeah. into the, the process and, of producing. And when I watched this, I was like, oh, my God, the process that goes into this guy's butter. And you could, and I could taste, I could nearly, you could taste why that butter now tastes so good compared to what you usually buy, purely because of um, what you could see. So yes, amazing, and, amazing. Uh, and, and butter. We can make a whole episode on on butter. Oh, 
because the beautiful thing with that is that, especially at Jean-Yves Bordier, uh, which is French and it comes from uh, the northwest of France in, in Saint-Malo, um, they work with the seasons as well. And, and cows don't eat the same thing the whole year. So the quality of the milk, the, the fat content of the milk, the color of the milk changes throughout the year as well. So the butter also changes and evolves throughout the seasons. Uh, and that's that's very interesting. You work with a, live, with a live product, something that is alive. And you just try to elevate uh, what nature gives you uh, the best you can. And in the, to, come, to come back to Himalayan pink salt, I don't think we're trying to do that. And, and not that we could also. I mean, it's, it's a pretty finished product uh, once, you, once you take it out of the, of the mines. You have to refine it a bit and purify it a bit and, and clean it. But other than that, there's not much transformation happening. So yeah. if to, to, to close the, the, the chapter a bit, if you go to the supermarket and you're looking at the salt options and you're seeing pink salt and you're thinking, okay, I'm going to buy this. It's better than the rest. Maybe not. No. Think twice. Think twice. Think about it. Exactly. Think about Sebastian. it. <laughs> <laughs> Sebastian, thank you as always. Thank you, Hesham. Uh, all our listeners, if you got this far, thank you for listening us at the plate up. Yes. And also, disclaimer, if you don't agree with us, you can also let us know. Or give us a free opinion. We, we love free opinions. We love free opinions. Um, but, uh, yep, thank you for listening at The Played Up this week. We will be back once again. And, um, yeah, until then, please stay safe. Stay safe. Respect social distancing. Exactly. Take care and of yourselves. Keep fighting. Happy Have a good one. See you next time. Bye-bye.